0: God's word. Almighty God, open our eyes to see Christ in his glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Matthew.
1: So the Bible reading this morning is from Ruth chapter four. And if you picked up a a Bible on your way in, it's on page 412, but otherwise you can read it on the screen um, and I'll be reading from the NIV version. So it's Ruth chapter four, starting at verse one. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here. And they did so. And then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself, I cannot do it. Now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become a final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other this was a method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. And then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Marlon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Marlon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman May your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he had made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. (coughs) This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon; Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David.
0: Well, thank you, Matthew. Well, uh, friends, what a week it's been. When I wrote this talk on Thursday, and finished on Thursday night, Russia hadn't invaded the Ukraine. So I had a different talk introduction about the people of Ukraine living under a threat of invasion, how old women, how university students were being drilled in how how to use AK-47s. China was there, worryingly silent. The world was fearful of where all this could lead. That was Thursday. Now, of course, the Ukraine has been invaded, and where is their hope? The US isn't their saviour. The NATO member countries are not their saviour. Where is their hope? Well, yesterday's headline in the Adelaide advertiser put it succinctly, pray for Ukraine. A lot came out in those three words. Helpless hopeless, the only one left to call on is God. Because we are helpless. We know we need redemption from a frightening future where strong nations simply do whatever they want without abiding by rules. That is exactly what it was like in the time of Ruth. Ruth lived in the period of the judges, a time when there was no king and when everyone did what seemed right in their own eyes. That's the last verse in the book of Judges. The very next verse is the book of Ruth, which begins, Ruth lived in the time of the Judges. Although the story of Ruth seems peaceful enough, on the national, on international scale, zoom out from her town, it was a time of fear and upheaval. For 400 years, Israel kept going through its cycles. There'd be a period of peace. Israel would forget the Lord. God would hand them over to foreign nations who would invade, who would oppress the Israelites, and then in their misery, they would call out to him. God would raise up a judge, a deliverer, Samson, Jephthah, Gideon, Ehud, who'd free them from oppression, but the cycle would go round again and again, nations invading because Israel had sinned, forgotten the Lord, nations oppressing, deliverance, peace, around again, 400 years. In this context, this tumult of living in fear with the constant threat of foreign invasion, of foreign oppression, of ordinary people caught in the crossfire. God outlines a story of redemption in the book of Ruth. We need redemption, don't we? I mean, what is wrong with a human heart that it seems so bent upon destroying other people? Haven't we learned from history What of the horrors of war in the last century? And what you experienced this week, that fear, that panic, that sense of alarm is a collective yearning across the world for redemption. But not just from the evil in Vladimir Putin's heart, but from the destructive narcissism of the human heart that makes everyone in their worst moments bent on evil. And that is why Ruth chapter four is so important. Against this backdrop of fear, we now zoom in in on a peaceful scene in Bethlehem to a story of one woman's redemption, a personal story that connects with us and with God's plans not only for our redemption but for the world. Father in heaven, please help us to see your plan and help us to put our faith in the one you've sent as we see him more clearly. Amen. So we come to the story, right? The story is all about redemption. I, you may have heard it, you may have picked it up. It's this moment that the story of Ruth has been building towards. First, in chapter one, there was the need for redemption. And then in chapter two, we meet Boaz, who's a potential redeemer. Last week, Ruth and Naomi found the promise of redemption and rest. And now in this story, we're presented with not One, not two, not three, but four redeemers. The first potential redeemer is an unnamed relative, closer to Ruth and Naomi than Boaz, and he therefore has first dibs on the right to redeem Naomi's field and everything that comes with it, including the need to marry Ruth. Boaz himself has designs on Ruth, but to get Ruth, he must clear this hurdle, the problem of the relative. All right, so he sits down at the town gate where big business transactions are done. He invites his relative to sit with him. Naomi has put up her field for redemption. She is not entirely destitute, but she has no income. She has to sell what she has to live. And then before the elders of the town, Boaz outlines the situation. He says, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. He offers the chance to purchase the land to the relative. I'll redeem it, says the man. Boaz then says, okay, but you know, it's a package deal, don't you? You have to marry Ruth if you buy the land. Now the relative hasn't thought of that. He'd only been thinking about the financial benefits. And the investment now didn't seem good. If he married Ruth, he'd have to pay to keep her, and of course any children that came by her. And if she were to have children, well then that would mean that his own children by his first wife would miss out on the land as their inheritance because His child by Ruth would inherit it under Israelite law. And given the price that he has to fork out for the field and the price of keeping Ruth and Naomi, by the way, you've got to throw her in, let's not forget the mother-in-law, and then Ruth's children, and given that he'd gain no extra inheritance for his current kids in this, this is a bad business deal, right? I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You'd redeem it yourself, I can't do it. Well, Mr. Miserly misses out, doesn't he? And that's exactly what Boaz was hoping would happen. So then in this sort of Monty Python-esque moment where transactions are made by the giving of the sandal, the giving of the sandal. (laughs) Don't ask me to explain, I have no idea. All right, (laughs) attention now shifts to Boaz. He is the second redeemer in this story. His sandal is off. He gives it to Naomi, and the announcement is made. You are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech and his sons, Marlon and Killian, and so I have acquired Ruth the Moabite, Marlon's widow, as my wife. You are all witnesses. It's all clear. It's all done. The elders give their blessing, and the blessing, their blessing is prophetic. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and like Leah, They were Jacob's wives, the mothers of Israel's tribes. May you become famous in the region and in our town of Bethlehem. And through your offspring, the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Tamar. Now, this this really helps to know the Old Testament stories. I hope you're reading the Bible, by the way. You're reading through it? You're getting through it? You know, once a year, read through the whole thing, that's good for you, right? Just a little plug. All right, Tamar, if you've been reading through it, you'll know, she was an already famous Gentile woman who'd kind of grafted herself in. She'd fought to keep her place within the tribe of Judah, within the story of redemption, because she had given birth to Perez, who's Boaz's ancestor. What they're saying is, may the Lord bless your descendants that come to you through Ruth. And that was more than just offering well wishes. Because for an Israelite, you see, having children meant that you took your place within God's plan of bringing blessing to the world. How so? Back in Genesis 12, God made a promise to your forefather, Abraham, that he would bring blessing to the world through Abraham's descendants. So having children, being one of Abraham's descendants, was a chance to feature in that plan of God bringing blessing to the world. And to have children, if you're in the tribe of Judah, because kings would come from the tribe of Judah, that was an extra chance because your child could have the chance to be the king, or if not the king, the the forefather, the ancestor to the king. Now remember, of course, kings hadn't yet come to Israel. There was no king in those days. It's the period of the judges. But nevertheless, they were promised. They were still in the future. But now, of course, after this blessing, Boaz is now married. There's the chance that he would become a father through Ruth. And if they were to have a son, there's the chance that from him would come a ruler, a king, who would bring blessing to the world. And that's what happens. In verse 13, Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife. The Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a beautiful baby boy. And the woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. And there is the third redeemer. It is Naomi's grandson, the baby boy, born to Ruth and to Boaz. He is Naomi's redeemer because in verse 15, we're told, he will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. It's like she's been given a second chance, a second lease on life because your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. And we just have a little window into the goodness of God to Naomi. Through this child, God has brought her out of captivity to emptiness and to bitterness because that's where she was. Verse 16 sees Naomi taking the child in her arms and caring for him. Verse 17 sees the women exclaiming, Naomi has a son. And now she really is her name, Naomi. The name Naomi means pleasant. She's no longer what she called herself when she came back from Moab in chapter one. She's no longer Mara, which means bitter. Because although back then she'd seen her life only as empty, now the Lord has has made it full. Naomi, through Ruth, has a daughter-in-law who loves her. And in Boaz, Naomi has a son-in-law to provide for her. And in her grandson, who the women named Obed, meaning servant of God, Naomi now has a reason to live. A little boy to care for. A little boy to take his plan, his place in God's plan for redemption. A little boy to serve God. Well this is a wonderful story, isn't it? The story of redemption. There's been three redeemers. The first, the relative, he could redeem but he didn't want to. The second, Boaz, he initially couldn't but he did want to redeem. The third was born to be a redeemer Where is the fourth? The fourth one is our redeemer, one who can redeem, one who wants to redeem, one who was born to redeem. Who is he? He's the one connected to us by the genealogy at the end of the chapter from Judah and Tamar down to Boaz and Ruth, whose son Obed becomes the grandfather of King David. And of course, it's not until we turn to the pages of the New Testament, to the first chapter, to Matthew chapter 1, that we see our Redeemer named. The New Testament, the story, begins with a genealogy, placing Jesus the Christ in the line of the son of David, descendant of Obed born to Boaz and Ruth. Matthew chapter one fills out the family tree that's incomplete at the end of Ruth. And in doing so, Ruth's story you see of redemption has become part of our story. It's our story too. I want you to see this. You know, Oftentimes we can feel like the stories of the Bible have no real connection with real world events, real world fear. It's not the case. Just before Jesus was born, it was announced that he would bring redemption from fear. Because just before Jesus' birth, Zechariah the priest praised God that God had finally come and had redeemed his people. Zechariah spoke of Jesus' coming in terms of redemption and specifically in terms of redemption from fear, terms exactly relevant to us now. He, he spoke about redemption from foreign armies invading, salvation from all our enemies and from the hands of all who hate us. And he then spoke about redemption from sin's curse, rescue from the hand of our enemies. But even more deeply still, he spoke of redemption from sin's power. Jesus' coming would mean that God would enable us to serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness all our days. How is that possible, to serve the living God without fear? The answer is the most basic redemption of all, the forgiveness of sins. You see, God has a plan of redemption. It's big, it's huge, but the core of it, the the necessary spot to begin, the essential beginning is redemption from sin. And that's the redemption that our world really needs, to be set free, first of all, from captivity to sin. The sin in the heart of Vladimir Putin, I mean, imagine if he wasn't sinful. Well, the world would be a different place. The sin that grips, in fact, every human heart. And then on an even more basic level than that, we need redemption from sin's penalty, not just being captive to it, its power, but its penalty. Because more real than the fear of Russian tanks and missiles and bullets from AK-47s is the fear of God's judgment after death. And that's a fear that if we're honest and if we knew what's real, we would all feel very deeply by ourselves. We don't have to be in the Ukraine to live under the shadow of death, you see. We'll all die and then we will all face the judgment beyond. What we need, the core of our need, is to be set free from sin's penalty. In other words, At our core need, we need to be forgiven. We need the record against us cleared, don't we? We need our slate wiped clean, once and for all, and then in a way that deals with the biggest issue, the core issue, the forgiveness of sins, the centerpiece of redemption you see. Have that and everything else sort of unravels, it follows. So. Given that Jesus is the redeemer in God's plan, now I want want to take you to another peaceful scene in Bethlehem, centuries after when Ruth and Boaz lived. On a hill outside that town, perhaps in direct line of sight to the town gate where Boaz did his transaction and achieved his redemption, some shepherds, of course, were quietly sitting, watching their flocks at night. When the sky exploded with the glory of the Lord... Shining around a figure, and it was this messenger, this heavenly messenger. The shepherds, of course, were terrified, but they heard the message, good news, not bad news, good news, a gospel announcing that that very day in Bethlehem, the town of David and Boaz and Obed, that town, a saviour had been born, Christ the Lord, the Redeemer, the fourth Redeemer. And then as as if to shine a huge spotlight on the significance of that birth, of that baby boy descended from Ruth, a great company of angels in a battalion formation appeared and announced that this birth meant two things. First of all, for God in the highest, it meant glory. And then for people on earth, peace to those on whom God's favor rests. The, The promise of peace, you see. You know, Jesus is described in Isaiah as the Prince of Peace. He is described as the hope of the world because the government will rest on his shoulders. That means he will be a ruler. And in contrast with ruling with narcissistic, sinful evil in his heart, he will rule with wisdom and righteousness, the righteousness that comes from God because his name is character. Will be called Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting God, Almighty God, Prince of Peace, and there won't be countries threatening or invading each other under His reign. Isaiah says the machinery of war—you know, warriors' boots, swords, spears, tanks—you know—make a modern translation. They will be burnt. They'll be turned into gardening equipment. Spears into pruning shears. <laughs> Um, they just won't be needed. This is the great demilitarization. It hasn't happened yet, but neither has Jesus begun to reign in that way. But the promise is there. He will redeem us from violence and war, and even more than that, he'll redeem us from sin's curse. In the book of Revelation, you get a picture where all of this is heading. It's a picture of heaven right now. 24 elders around the throne, holding in their hands the bowls containing the prayers of the saints, the prayers of our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine or around the world, they, their prayers matter to God, they are before his throne. And then with the backdrop of being surrounded by this vast multitude of angels, 10,000 times 10,000, get your head around that, the elders sing a song to Jesus who's on the throne, the Lamb of God. You are worthy. To take up the scroll and open its seals, meaning you are you are worthy to put into effect God's plans. Why? Because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased people for God. He paid the price for redemption. He purchased, he bought us. From every tribe and language and people and nation. He is worthy. His blood was the price, you see, the redemption price, to set us free from sin's curse, and indeed to kickstart God's plans, to undo it, undo the curse of sin. We haven't got time to trace all of this through, but if we were to fast forward to the very end, even beyond the judgment day of all people, beyond even when Satan himself has been cast into the fire, at the very end we read of our complete redemption from our final, last, and most powerful enemy of all. Revelation chapter 20, verse 14 that then death itself will be thrown into the lake of fire. Death and Hades, you know what Hades is, don't you? It's the holding cell in the underworld for those who will be judged. Well, that gets thrown out as well because the judgment's taken away. And then after death has been overthrown, John says, and then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, and then a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with people, now he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain because the old order of things, it's passed away. That, brothers and sisters, is our full redemption. We long for the day, but it will come because one from David's line, the descendant of Ruth, was born on another quiet, peaceful day in Jerusalem, in Bethlehem. And he grew and with his blood he paid for our sin and he bought forgiveness and he purchased men and women from every tribe and language and people and nation to belong to God so that When God makes all things new and when he has gathered those that he's redeemed to him, then the lamb will be seen to reign. The prince of peace, ruling over the kingdom of God in righteousness and wisdom. And we wait for that day with yearning in our hearts. In the meantime, In the meantime, what's he doing? Well, his reign in people's lives is making a difference. This week I've seen video footage of Ukrainian Christians spontaneously starting singing at train stations in Kiev, reminding the people of Kiev of the hope that's held out for them in Jesus. And people were stopping and listening because they had no other hope. I've read of a church planter from London who's there in central Ukraine. He's trying to connect with other pastors all around the Ukraine to plant churches. He's got a plan on how he's doing it. Um, Not dissimilar to what's happening here. Now their church is offering food and comfort to those who are fleeing. They're holding prayer services. They are fasting, asking God to answer their prayers. He says that's giving us a settled heart. And the ability to help and reach out to people. Their church is on a crossroads. A lot of people are fleeing through there. They stop. They get fed. They have a place to stay and to sleep the night. They're prayed for. And they're staying. I read of one foreign pastor married with four daughters who's decided with his wife to stay in Kiev. And I want to finish with his words. He wrote, and I got these this morning. As tensions have risen, our church announced a week of fasting and prayer, gathering every night to, present, to bring our request to God. For three days in a row, the lights were turned off in the city. We were forced to meet in the dark, adding a solemn atmosphere to our prayers for peace. This was Thursday, right? At the end of the week, those moments produced in us an inner strength to persevere. Through communal prayers, We've gained confidence and peace. We believe God is with us, and that's the most important thing. During this critical moment, our church, which has about 1,000 people attending on a normal Sunday, is also a place of service. We've recently conducted several trainings on performing first aid. People are learning how to apply a tourniquet, how to stop bleeding, apply bandages, and manage airways. These lay people aren't going to become doctors, but this has given them confidence to care for their neighbors if necessary. We have decided to stay both as a family and as a church. When this is over, the citizens of Kiev will remember how Christians have responded in their time of need. One of the big things that caused the early church to multiply was when the bubonic plague hit Rome and the rulers and the magistrates all left and the leaders left. It was the Christians who stayed and cared for the poor of the city who couldn't leave. That was very powerful. He goes on and says, while the church may not fight like the nation, we still believe we have a role to play in this struggle. We will shelter the weak, we will serve the suffering. We will mend the broken. And as we do, we offer the unshakable hope of Christ and his gospel. We may feel helpless in the face of such a crisis. We can pray like Esther. Ukraine is not God's covenant people, but like Israel, our hope is that the Lord will remove the danger as he did for his ancient people. And as we stay, we pray the church in Ukraine will faithfully Trust the Lord and serve our neighbors. Well that's the impact of God redeeming them from their sin. What a contrast of Vladimir Putin. Let's pray, our merciful Father, thank you that Christ makes a difference. Thank you for the story of Ruth, for the story of the fourth redeemer Jesus, we thank you that on the cross he dealt with the core need, the need to be saved from the coming judgment through the forgiveness of sins, achieved through the payment of the price of his own body and blood, shed for us, broken for us. Our Father in heaven, thank you that Christ redeems us from sin's penalty We thank you that ultimately, he redeems us from sin's curse and we long for that full day of redemption when we'll taste it in all its fullness, that which you've promised, that which you've you've secured on deposit by Jesus' death for us. We pray for our brothers and sisters, those in Christ in Ukraine. Thank you for their courage. Father, help them as they serve. Please help them with the selfless sacrifice of Christ himself. And may this spread a a ripple of hope through that city and through the nation. And we pray that though bullets are powerful, the grace of Christ would prove to be the most powerful and long-term thing that happens out of this conflict felt in the lives of many, many people. Preserve us, we pray in Jesus' name.